Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Two Feet Apart with me, your host, P.G. Patra. I'm so excited for today's guest, so let's give a warm welcome to Scintilla. Scintilla Bubb is a 23-year-old Afro-Indigenous woman, advocate, mentor, and educator. Scintilla, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, so, so, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Scintilla. Um, I just introduced myself in uh, my native tongue, which is Michif. So, I am mixed Afro-Indigenous with both uh, Métis ancestry and Grenadian ancestry. And I am a recent university graduate and currently teaching grade 7-8 in Treaty 4 territory amazing. How did you come to learn that language? Um, So in university uh, here in Regina, um, we had the opportunity to learn uh, Michif uh, from Michif from around the Labrette area, um, from our old people and our elders in the community. Um, We were told that there were only five, around 500 Michif speakers in Canada. And so it was really important that I learned just something as simple, like introducing myself uh, in any, any time I talk in front of people, just to continuously reinforce that language and make sure that it's being heard out there. That's beautiful. I love it. Um, Did you grow up with very, like very in touch with your culture or how did you come into that? Um, so growing up, I had, I knew I was uh, Métis, but I had little representation around me because it was lost in my family. Um, my, my family, my grandma, my mamere was lucky um, to grow up with her, with mostly her French side, and she didn't grow up much with uh, her Métis side, which uh, originates from St. Pierre, Manitoba. And uh, she, yeah, so she grew up with her French side and she grew up more with the, within the white community. And she spoke a language, not quite French and not quite uh, something else, which uh, we now know is Cree. And it was Machis. So some of the words that I learned in university, I was able to piece it back together to the words my grandma would say growing up. And so I didn't, I knew I was Métis, but it wasn't something talked about. My grandma made certain foods and certain soups that I now know was like bullets and bullet soup and or stew. And she would make some um, bannock or some like fry bread and you know, they didn't, she didn't call it that stuff, but a lot of the memories I was told the last four years um, from my aunties and my uncles and my grandma herself um, are very, are many stories that I've learned about the Métis. And so, yeah, through that, I, I didn't grow up with it, but I started to uh, learn more about who I, who I am on my mom's side. Awesome. It's nice that even though she didn't kind of use the names and the stories that she still kind of implemented that culture for you guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she often, um, she often doesn't really, you know, I would, I will ask her even now when she has like pre Alzheimer's and she often doesn't really know kind of what's going on, but um I'll ask her certain things and she'll tell me she's not an Indian she'll tell me she's French but we we come from a long line through doing genealogical like um research we come Mm -hmm. from a strong like from a from a rich Métis family and rich not rich in money but rich in knowledge and rich in um community involvement and so yeah (laughs) How did you go about finding those resources when you realized that you wanted to look more into that and develop more of yourself in that culture? So in 2016, I actually, um, I actually moved to Kingston, Ontario in 2015, 2016. And in 2016, I was approached by an uh, instructor his name is Peter Hodgson, and he had told me about this program in Regina, Saskatchewan, 
and it was called Saskatchewan's Urban Native Teaching Education Program. And he told me it was directed to Métis students. And I was kind of in like disbelief. I never heard of anything for Métis people. And so I applied, just took the risk. I ended up getting in and it became a reality um, by the time, like mid by midsummer, and I realized that was moving to Regina. I was going to quit basketball and I was going to try this new adventure and learn more about my mom's side. And when I came to Regina, I was so scared. I thought I was going to be the only person that maybe didn't look like your stereotypical like First Nations person or Native person. But I realized everyone was different. Um, I'm half black. I have had like someone that looked more Asian, more white, more, you know, like there was all kinds of people in my class and I right away felt connected. And so that's, that's kind of how I found out how, where, found out about this opportunity to learn more about my culture. And in my program, we've done culture camps. We've taken Michif, we've taken more uh, Métis directed classes. And lastly, we, we went to Winnipeg for a genealogy project actually, where we got to learn more about our Métis ancestry. That's amazing. Yeah. That sounds like such a good opportunity. Um, so I know you personally, so I follow along on your social media and everything, and you've got some impressive achievements and things that you've accomplished within that community. Do you want to speak a little bit about some of that? Um, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so throughout my life, my whole entire life, I've, uh, like, I'm trying to like humbly say this without it sounding like, no, don't be humble, brag, brag, <laughs> but, uh, no, but I actually grew up with foster siblings and siblings that were not biological. And so um, growing up, it was just normal to me to have people always at my house and sisters and brothers that weren't necessarily biological. And um, they were some of the, the most impactful people in my life, in my life. And it was something my mom did from a very young age she always brought you know her her kids from work over or we would go engage with them and so I just naturally I would say um took that on as I turned 18 19 and still I still continue and um I guess I got the Manitoba Heroes Award in 2019 so last year and that was I guess that was something I I am proud of. Um, originally, I said I didn't want it. I told them I didn't want it because I was so nervous. Um, and I, I didn't think what I do is impactful, but I realized just my little, the little things I do, it must make a difference in the lives of young people, such as like, I'll go to my way to sometimes bring them birthday presents or call them or make sure that, you know, they feel safe or connected to their culture and I'll look in their binders. So the kids I work with and the young people, I would say I am an advocate for them. I make sure that they have all the necessary things while they're in care. Um, I like to make sure that they have their jingle dresses, that they're dancing in powwows, that they're learning how to make tea jig. I, I like to teach them the things of where they come from and sometimes why they're in care. And I like to make it personal and get to know them, get to know their family, you know, and make, show them that I'm not just here for a paycheck. I'm here for them specifically. So I believe that's why maybe I got the Manitoba Heroes Award, but I, I do, um, I am dedicated into my community work, especially with children in and from care. That's incredible. And I think it's so important to have people like you that care more about just showing up and, you know, doing the bare minimum to get their paycheck and go. Those people that show these children and these communities that are underserved or not supported or just kind of in that vulnerable place, um, that there's people that care and are able to give you that step up to help you become better. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. What would you say is your passion and purpose in life right now? 
Definitely my passion is to work with young people. Uh, I love to share culture, get to the bottom and the root issues of, um, of different things such as like lack of culture, lack of language. I like to make sure that they're fully connected, like I said earlier, but that is something I would say is my passion is to implement plans for children to succeed to make sure young people succeed, um, especially within educational, um, like in, in, in educational settings and like institutions, like these educational in institutes were not made for us, right? As black or indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important to know for indigenous and for like other black children, I always want them to know that exactly these these aren't made for us and so we need to come up with a plan on how you're going to succeed because this is statistically those are the kids that are below grade level or sometimes not graduating at the rate that they should be whether it's here or whether it's in the states right mm -hmm. um and i think that would be my my passion to date is definitely making plans and making sure culture and land-based education is implemented in those so that children succeed that's so so important and i think it's a good idea to start teaching these things from a young age because you're never too young to have that those conversations especially with um children of color because ultimately they're never too young to face racism yeah exactly and to, to uh to suffer from some of that systematic those systematic barriers that are in place yeah exactly and at a young age i want young people to know that their voice matters that they can dismantle these colonial systems and that sometimes it's the voice of young people that's going to take us far far into the future and it gives me shivers when I see a young person resilient enough to speak about their truths and about their experiences. Because as a young person, like a younger person, I guess I'm only 23. So, <laughs> but, as, but as a younger person, I didn't have that, I didn't have that knowledge about who I was. I knew I was black. I knew I was Métis, but I didn't really know kind of what that meant. Mm -hmm. And I want young people to know who they are and then speak about what the, what is challenging in their own lives and to dismantle the systems around them. I think that's like the, like the most important thing. Absolutely. And it's a powerful tool for people to develop, especially from a young age. Yeah, for sure. Um, how did you grow to have the confidence and passion that you have in this now? Well, I would say I wasn't, I don't think I was always like a confident person. I mean, playing basketball, uh, I played high level basketball up until I was 19. And, you know, I was like semi, semi confident. I played with some really great girls who now play university and have graduated university basketball and between uh in Canada and the states I played with some really good girls in basketball and um <clears throat> I think that made my confidence high but when I switched passions from being an athlete to becoming to enjoying and becoming a social activist I would say is um learning that if I don't if I don't speak then I'm just as guilty as everyone else or something like that's kind of the mentality I have, but then also that my skin speaks louder than my words. So without me even talking, my skin shows me that shows that I'm living in a world that doesn't really honor who I am as a black indigenous person. And so I have to use my voice in order to tell people like my story and tell people my thoughts and feelings. And I think that that's important uh, to show our young people and that even though I don't feel confident, I still want them to think I'm confident so that they can have the confidence to, to speak in front of people and talk and, and show their passion. So I get my passion off, off, off knowing that young people are gonna speak one day 
and I have to be a good role model for them. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so important. And that's so good. Um, so this next question kind of stems from mostly just personal curiosity. I struggled growing up um, as a biracial woman of color because it was one of those things that I didn't fit in with the white community and I didn't really fit in with the black community. And it's hard being like an in-between because really there are such straight lines when it comes to that kind of stuff sometimes. And I'm always very curious um, because when I was younger, I chose not to identify as black, like when I was really little and didn't really understand any of it. And then I chose to identify as black and still do. Um, But like I have my one niece whom you know, and she's got Métis in her as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I have nephews that are three quarters white and a quarter black but I'm very curious how they'll identify growing up. How did you find that being Afro-Indigenous shaped your childhood experiences? Well, as a child, I refused to uh, identify as, as Indigenous, as Métis. I refused to say any of that. I knew I was, but that wasn't something I was going to tell anyone. And I would just tell people I'm German or that I'm white. So, um, because, you know as we, we know young people think white is right, white is good, white is the best, white is happy. Uh, so that was what I felt like was most appropriate. Being black, I, I knew I was Grenadian, but I refused to tell people I was black as well. I think it was hard. I hated my skin. I hated that I had eczema. I hated that I had um, vitiligo on my back. I thought everything was due to being black, actually. Um, I hated having curly hair and like chubby cheeks. Everything, everything about myself, I hated. So, and it was like so unfortunate. It wasn't until like the end of high school that I started to realize, okay, well, everyone wants big butts. Like everyone wants mm. curly hair. Like these things were what people were paying for and I had it. So, some of these things, you know, it wasn't cool when I was in grade four, but it became cool when I was in grade 12. And so I didn't identify as black as a kid. And even when I'd have my hair in cornrows, they would mistake me for a boy. And then that even made me hate being black even more. Um, So little things like that really like triggered me. And I refused to have my hair in braids. The first time I had my hair in braids was probably like, grade no it was like my first year of university so oh wow because I refused to like put make that um like show people that I have any black like I've straightened my hair since grade two um having straight hair was the thing when all the other cultures would cut their hair I thought cutting my hair was okay too but realizing that my hair wasn't going to grow back (laughs) yeah yeah oh god it takes so long to grow Yeah. And then, yeah, I remember my second year, my first year of university here at U of R, um, I dyed my hair blonde thinking that was going to be okay. And then like a month later, all my hair fell out. So that's when I started my curly, curly hair journey and started doing more braids and just not really flat ironing my hair anymore. And so my hair is getting long and yeah, I realized you know, people are paying for curly hair and I better embrace it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think similarly, my hair journey was very similar. I straightened it majority of my life. It wasn't until uh, the end of high school, I would put in braids, but if it wasn't in braids, it was straightened. I also dyed my hair various shades of blonde. Um, mm-hmm. It's so interesting how we really try to fit into those standards. Um, And even with the big butt thing, like I remember in high school, I was like, oh no, I need to be smaller. I need to be smaller. Like I wasn't necessarily like my butt's too big, but I was like, it just all needs to be smaller. And now I'm just like, oh no, the juicier, the better. Um, Exactly. (laughs) And that's something that like, even in college, I noticed that like, you know, guys would always compliment my butt and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, so like, this is okay now. This is cool now. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, it's interesting how how much that affects you as a kid. Yeah, I think it definitely led to some identity issues and, 
you know, just feeling just like not having that confidence. And, you know, I think that affected my academics. Like, to be honest, I wasn't academically inclined at all, not until I went to college and then university. Um, and so that all that kind of affected me in different ways. And I think, you know, I didn't have many people that looked like me. I didn't have many black people not a lot of Indigenous people, not a lot of Afro-Indigenous people. So I barely had anyone or teachers that look like me or have had the same experience as me that could relate. Mm -hmm. So if you could tell yourself, your younger self, one thing, um, what would it be? I would probably tell my younger self to love myself and probably you know enjoy life make mistakes learn from them and to take education seriously because i think education is very important and i do think that that's going to shape our future for our young people and so yeah that's what i would tell my younger self that's perfect um what's the best advice that you have received to date it can be related to culture it can be related to just life in general um but just something you would want to share that was a good piece of advice that you received the best advice i've ever received It was probably from a high school teacher and and just like just telling me that everything is possible and mm -hmm. anything or anything is possible something along those lines and that advice or that little interaction shaped my future and shaped my feelings towards everything and anything that came my way after that so that's awesome it's always great when you have those mentors and they're able to give you that guidance that you can carry with you and use practically throughout your life. Yep, for sure. <laughs> um, what are five adjectives that you would use to describe yourself? Hmm, I'd say maybe funny. Is that one? Yeah, it counts. Yeah. <laughs> Funny. Um, probably weird is another one. Um, talkative. Um, what would be another one? Really determined. Mm, I like it. And probably... Loving. I would say loving is the last one. Those are good ones. Um, is there a way that you make sure that you're actively showing um, honor to your Indigenous culture or even your, uh, is it Grenadian? Is that Grenadian? Okay, I wasn't yeah. sure if it was Grenadian culture or Grenadian. Um, Grenadian, yeah but how you actively show and honor those cultures? Okay. Um, yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the two. And um, being Métis, I think some of the things I do is I try to educate um, people on who the Métis are and how we're not like a half, half First Nations, half French something I do just to like honor my people. I try to partake in any sort of events. I was a Métis ambassador at the Folkorama in 2019, so last summer. And just anytime I can get involved within the Métis community, I was on a participant uh, before this podcast uh, for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls and kind of the Métis action plan. So that was something interesting that I tried to do to kind of honor my culture. But going a little bit further within Indigenous peoples and um, my partner who's Cree, I, 
I do try to honor his culture as well and the similarities between being uh, a midshift person and his Cree culture, Plains Cree culture, is that I try to um, learn some of the stories that he has and I would love to meet his musham and I would love to meet the elders in his community and hopefully one day visit his community. And so there's, there's that. I try to honor kind of my extended or my ancestral roots of being a Métis person because my people are Cree within the Métis, my Métis bloodline. And with my Grenadian culture, I, I really try hard to learn kind of who my family is. I try to learn something as simple as um, the, the Grenadian anthem, which I've had like memorized since I was five years old. Impressive. So, yeah, so those are things that I've always kind of been curious about, about being Grenadian. Um, sometimes I try to like do the accent like my dad. So there, there's a few things that I try to uh, do and learn and hope that I can honor, honor my people on both sides equally and like without having a justification for mm-hmm. those two. So yeah, those are things. Those are great ways to implement it in a way that's not overwhelming, but still honorary and gives you the opportunity for the lifelong learning. Yeah, exactly. Um, So speaking of kind of ways that we represent our cultures and honor them on a frequent basis, how do you feel um, about, you know, there's that huge argument that says, you know, Caucasian people shouldn't wear certain braids or shouldn't wear certain dresses uh, and outfits and stuff like that. What is your perspective on that? Hmm. Um, I kind of have like mixed feelings about it, I guess. Like I see a few things like should white people wear indigenous beadwork and all that. And I do think it's okay for non-indigenous people or white people specifically to wear indigenous beadwork. Um, and same with black, like black people's regalia, depending on kind of where you're from at least with Grenadian regalia, I would say that as long as you're honoring it and you're buying it from a local person rather than buying it from somewhere that's made overseas or in in Asia or somewhere far, that's not a huge factory of like child labor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it makes it a little bit more special and that you've kind of hopefully learned about it. And same with hairstyles. Um, for, 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 you know, over 150 years or longer, Indigenous people have been wearing braids, but also Black people have as well. And should white people wear braids or should non-Indigenous people or non-Black um, Indigenous people of color wear braids? That's kind of like a controversial kind of thing. Um, I think if you're doing it in a good way, I would say, because I can't judge it because people can say light skins or biracial people shouldn't wear braids because our hair is nicer, you know, Mm -hmm. but you know, so there's going to be someone saying something wrong, like something's always wrong. Um, But I think if people like non-Black Indigenous people of color are doing it in a good way and honoring the people they're wearing it for, then I think it makes it a little bit more special and a little bit more, you know, it makes it, it makes it not so, it doesn't make it feel so bad, I guess I could say, you know? But then I also have, there's like that controversy where it's like, should non-Rastafarians wear dreads, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, my uncle's being a Rastafarian, right? So my uncle Nabil is a Rasta, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, he grows his hair out for, you know, spiritual reasons. He praises Jaw, right? And w- people that are wearing, um, wearing dreads just for the looks, but there's actually significant reason why Rastafarians wear it is really 
it, it almost makes it like controversial but for generations people have been wearing dreads in their hair for just the the look you know mm -hmm. but they got to understand that this is a person's culture this is a person's religion and they're praising people and they have long hair for spiritual reasons so i think people need to be aware of all that as well and really do their research and you know sometimes asking permission from the community or the people before wearing a specific thing or you know doing your hair a certain way that could be that could hurt another person's feelings you know mm -hmm. yeah I can't speak on the indigenous things because I'd love to say that I believe people shouldn't wear headdresses but I don't even know the full history and culture behind them so it almost feels hypocritical to say but in terms of that stuff I think it's 100% situational like you said it depends on what you're doing, who you're speaking with, have you, maybe you have permission from someone within that culture, um, because maybe you're one of those people that are doing the work and honoring it and things like that. And, but my big thing is when it comes to like, especially black culture, um, because it's so idolized between the music that is the most trendy nowadays and even to like the dance routines that are trending and the outfit styles that come around and stuff like this. And my biggest thing is when it comes to the hairstyles, just people honoring and respecting it. And, you know, if people rename cornrows, um, then I'm not a fan because you're not honoring the heritage and history and how they came about. And exactly. some you're of right. the prestige that came with some hairstyles and some of the way that these ha hairstyles helped save lives and make differences for people. Um, but then also it's difficult because, you know, I've faced racism and had encounters because my hair was afroed out. And then to see people um, wear fake afros and stuff like that, I don't know how I feel about it because I'm like, if I've had negative experiences from people that then go and copy it, um, it's always an interesting internal battle. Yeah, you're exactly right. Those are really good points. I like that. Thank and for you. the, for the headdresses, um, I would say unless you're a chief or you shouldn't be wearing a headdress, uh, those are like the highest honor, like the highest honor within first nations communities and, you know, headdresses are a sacred thing. So when the, when the, um, that team in the States, what was it? Um, they were wearing headdresses to hockey games and they were told that they weren't allowed to wear headdresses anymore. They wouldn't be allowed in the games. And fans started writing all over Instagram that they weren't going to be fans anymore. And all because they were told that they couldn't wear headdresses to games because mm -hmm. it hurts people's feelings, right? But what they don't understand is that, you know, they've been hurting people's feelings for generations. Like these teams have been around for long, like all these Indian teams, like their, their mascots are Indians. Like I always think, what if like we called them like the Chicago Caucasians or something, you know, but we're out here having Chicago mm -hmm. Blackhawks and, you know, Washington, like what if they were called you know like <laughs> there's a whole bunch of different names out here like even edmonton eskimos and they're finally changing their name and people are freaking out because of something like that so i feel like there's always going to be someone mad about situations like that and um yeah yeah <laughs> Mm -hmm. So how do you feel about, I've heard very mixed things, even from people of color in regards to how people feel about the renaming of these sports teams and logos and brands and statues and everything. How do you feel about that? Like the statues of like the Edmonton Eskimos or in general? No, just generally like a lot of uh, historical statues and things like that that represented people that maybe encouraged or enforced uh, slavery and systematic racism and things like that. So in Canada, in Regina, there is a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald, which we know is the first president or prime minister of Canada, who actually was pretty much the founding father of the Indian residential school system that has pretty much impacted 
indigenous peoples tremendously and pretty much was that first person to kind of I wouldn't say the first person because first contact was definitely that first person that interrupted like Indian like the people on the land but Sir Johnny McDonald was someone that you know wanted to take that Indian out of the child make them white make them Christian civilized whatever and so to have their statues all over Canada and all the major cities and littler cities and towns or wherever is um it almost like feels like the Indian residential school system the 60s scoop the road allowance people that all these different parts of history that involve indigenous people or that involve the Chinese you know the Chinese in Canada like the Chinese head tax or you know blacks in Canada that makes it sound like all these bad things that happen in Canada and that are still happening is okay just by still having you know statues here in the in these cities mm -hmm. You know, we have a long history and it's still continuing. Like, you know, the, there was the 60s scoop. Now there's like the millennial scoop. You know, the, things are still happening uh, today here in Canada. Um, you know, there was, you, we always think it's the states too that um, like systematic racism happens to, let's say the blacks in the states, but blacks here have been treated from time immemorial, like between the Nova, like, living in Nova Scotia, like the Blacks in Nova Scotia and stuff, you know, their their lives haven't been easy and Blacks all across the country, it hasn't been as easy as what we think. And in comparison to the States, does it sound as bad? I don't even know if we can compare those due to like, you know, two different governments and stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I do think that there's a lot of there's a lot of things that represent people that have done more harm than good here in Canada. And it just kind of makes it seem like what happened to people of color has just been swept under the rug. And it really doesn't matter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just not acknowledged and overlooked and they just try to kind of almost erase that part of history. Exactly. Oh, we already said we're sorry. And, 2015 and we wrote a trc and we write a legacy for mmiwg2s but that's not good enough you know reconciliation hasn't happened and reconciliation hasn't happened and i don't know if it ever will from the way canada plays around you know mm -hmm. because if reconciliation was going to happen when trudeau was elected something just as simple um there wouldn't be these statues again there wouldn't be these monuments of you know these 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 figures around canada we wouldn't you know we would go back to some traditional governments and we you know we wouldn't celebrate such such colonial holidays but we would celebrate you know something like something as simple as juneteenth or uh indigenous people's day indigenous people's month black history month so things like that but we're celebrating colonial holidays that you know we've been conformed to learn and do pretty much mm -hmm. i saw a screenshot someone shared the other day and it was like we really looked at this in our history textbooks and i remember vividly seeing this photo and it's a white man but with the egyptian uh, headpiece for a pharaoh um, in one of the history textbooks and I vividly remember sitting in history class and seeing that photo because half the time all you did was pay attention to the photos in the books um, and I remember seeing that and I just recognized like why wasn't I more alarmed or curious then like yeah. it starts when you're young for um, sure. And it's just ingrained in absolutely everything and people don't always realize it. And so, you know, the renaming and the statues coming down and different things being commemorated is all big things. But then there's those little things like those textbooks, um, like the curriculum, what's being taught. And a lot of people are like, okay, teach the black history and teach about slavery and whatever. But you also need to acknowledge before then and acknowledge the beauty of the culture before it was affected. and um, 
altered and things like that. And even just the little things like, you know, people never think of this until I say it, but you know, I travel a ton and every single time I go to a hotel, I've never been able to use their shampoo or conditioner. And, uh, but that's easily accessible for white people everywhere. Um, but it's not for people of color and just things like that. Like it's those little things, the textbooks, the hotels, the structure of every the crayon colors never having a skin tone for i always had to draw myself either black or white <laughs> yeah exactly uh, and sometimes i try to layer the two and then i just looked ill um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's absolutely in everything and so i think a good step like a lot of people disagree with like i've experienced more people that disagree with them coming down and them changing things than they do with changing things and i respect the fact that it's important to acknowledge how far we've come and so you know maybe this was what we idolized before but that's not where we are but you're right in saying that it's a very constant reminder that's extremely unnecessary and disrespectful ultimately towards those cultures. Um, so although it's late in the game to change everything and now it's all changing at once, um, it's better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, is there a story that you know off the top of your head of the Métis people that you would be willing to share? Yeah, okay. Um, so I believe it was the killing of Thomas Scott. Um, okay, so let me just try to articulate this. So <laughs> there was a killing of, I believe, an orange man is what they called um, I believe the Scottish and they lived in Ontario, but I could be wrong. Um, and there was a killing of him and the people that drew the pictures right on the corner of Broadway and Maine, which is upper Fort Gary in Winnipeg. Um, they had drew some orange men and some, some white people had drawn a picture of Louis Riel killing actually Thomas Scott. And there was a bounty on Tom and on Louis Riel's head, like a bounty on Louis Riel. I mean, and mm -hmm. there was someone was trying. They were all trying to kill Louis Riel, and um, Tom Scott was dumped into the Red River, and his body was never found. You know, he he couldn't. Maybe he didn't even die, but they said he died, and Louis Riel killed him. But it wasn't Louis Riel. Anyways, Louis Riel had to take off. He was an upper four gear and he had to take off. He went to the States. He met with some chiefs. He met with some people in the States. He ended up bringing like his wife and kids. And he ended up in Montana. And he was in Montana for a little bit. And he was in the church there. And he was, uh, he was, he was doing something with the people in the church. And back in Saskatchewan, in uh, around northern Saskatchewan, around Batoche, or not in Batoche, but around like Regina or something, um, Gabriel Dumont and and Andre Nault, I believe, um, they needed help in 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 they needed help, and they needed Louis Riel's help, and so. They traveled all the way to Montana and literally this is like not, I'm not, I don't think I'm saying the story very well, but when they get to the church in Montana where Louis Rail was, Gabriel Dumont knocks on the door and he says, Louis, and Louis was like, wait, like wait till church is done. So when church is done, Andre and Andre Knowlton, Gabriel Dumont asked Lirio, pretty much, can you come? We need you to help us with this quest in Saskatchewan and we need help in uh, the, like in getting this all ready for um, the orange men coming and, you know, the Europeans pretty much coming towards Saskatchewan. And so Louis said, I'm going to finish my quest here in Montana and then 
I will come and help you. So when Louis Riel was done his quest, and I don't know however long that took, he, he decided he would go. And he had a vision. And something about Louis Riel was he had many visions. Um, and some people would say that he was like psycho or mm-hmm. not psycho, like not psych, like that he was psychic, but that he was psycho. And they wanted to put him into an insane asylum. And he's been in the insane asylum in lower Fort Gary, um, in just like I said, Winnipeg, St. Andrews now. Mm-hmm. St. Andrews, Manitoba. And so when Louis Riel had, he had a vision that he would be hanged. And I know people get confused when I say hanged, but I think that's the right word for this. Um, so on his way back to Saskatchewan or to Saskatchewan, he, he had a vision that he got hanged. And so he, he just, he needed to go help these people because that's what he did. And so he went to Saskatchewan um, with Gabriel and, and and Andre, and that's when the Battle of Batoche happened, or they also call it the Red River Rebellion, or they also call it, there's like the North, sorry, not the Red River Rebellion, the Northwest Rebellion. There's many different names, the War of 1812 or something, like there's different Mm -hmm. names for it. And um, he had that vision and he kept going. And he was pretty, he was pretty, he was the type that he never wanted to fight with his hands. He wanted to use his words to articulate. He wanted to show that the Métis did things civilly, that they don't use their, their hands or their guns. But then Gabriel Dumont liked to use his hands. He was very verbal. He liked to, you know, like use guns, use his hands do kind of like that dirty work and so the battle of batash happened and louis i i believe they were coming towards louis riel and louis riel held his hand out and just like a stop sign in front of you kind of like um he held his hand out and they stopped right in front of him and he decided to to uh give himself in pretty much and uh Gabriel Dumont took off like he he wasn't going to turn himself in mm-hmm. and anyways Louis Riel was ended up ended up being hanged um in front of all his people at I believe the RCMP barracks in Regina at the depot mm-hmm. and his body was brought back to St. Boniface Winnipeg and there is that controversy um of where he was buried if he was buried uh, actually in St. Patel or if he was buried in St. Boniface because people believe that like he could have been dug dug out but when he did die he like was twitching which is unfortunate like kind of graphic and mm-hmm. um, right away people were taking snippets of his beard and in the museum in St. Boniface there is actually like snippets of his beard and his hair in the you know so there's all his like real stuff but yeah it was very very sad story and he went just to help and Mm -hmm. fight for the rights of his people so wow I can't believe that people feel like the entitlement to go and take those clippings like I don't even want to say clippings um those pieces of his hair and his body uh yeah it's kind of weird yeah exactly that's yeah it always blows my mind what people are uh, feel that they're entitled to do um what do you think is the most impactful part of the metis culture for you um the resistance of our people for sure the resistance of our women and I believe that our women have led for uh, generations and our women have been at the forefront and the front line of a lot of many different like in a lot of different things um, and historical moments and our women are the ones that raised um, the young people and the kids that have been there through it all so I do think 
yeah, that those moments are very important. And yeah, that resiliency to have absolutely. Um, what about your personal story? Do you think is important for other people to hear? Um, I guess just like overcoming identity crisis and just uh, overcoming, you know, not really growing up with my indigenous culture, <laughs> my indigenous culture and my Métis culture. Um, and just, you know, being prideful of who you are and all that. So. Absolutely. Um, is there anything that you're currently working on or trying to raise awareness for? Yeah, so um, I'll be starting a social media platform. Um, again, <laughs> there was one, but it just didn't work out. And um, yeah, I'm not sure what that's gonna look like. I'm still kind of working out the details, trying to look for some partners. And um, yeah, just kind of, just kind of hoping to um, instill a little bit of resilience uh, during this uh, pandemic within um, Black and Indigenous people of color and really just trying to, you know, be an advocate and just like a helping hand for young people around me and within my community, for sure. So important. And I love to see people with those goals to build that online community and to help the younger generations so that they don't always face the same struggles or curiosities. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Um, so where could our listeners best find or support you? And I will link this in the show notes below. Um, so you could find me on Instagram is probably the most, uh, the most used social media platform at Scintilla B. And um, yeah, you could just look at the notes below on how to spell it. Okay, perfect. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your stories and experiences. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Mm -hmm.